Ocean Bites Out Loud is a podcast that brings the latest news in ocean science straight to you. Our goal is to summarize the most recent scientific articles for your listening pleasure, and to talk to up-and-coming ocean scientists who have new and interesting ideas to share with the world. We hope you enjoy and learn a little something along the way. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Uh, Today we have with us an awesome scientist. Can you please tell us your name and your preferred pronouns? Sure. Um, My name is Dominique Moucheri, and my pronouns are she, her. Awesome. Thanks. So, Dom, what are you researching? Can you tell us a little bit about it and maybe share a fun fact? Okay. So I kind of explain what I research as being like looking at how heat and hunger uh, are affecting marine invertebrates. Uh, So what that means in a little more detail is I look at what are known as multiple stressors. So if you think about, um, you know, when it gets really hot outside and you start feeling kind of stressed, that is a stressor. So you're in a climate that maybe isn't your optimal climate. So you're in heat stress and that would be a single stressor. Uh, With my my research and my kind of questions that I'm interested in, I want to see what happens when animals are um, being confronted by multiple stressors. So if it's hot and then also they're hungry, do they act in different ways? Is it a worse reaction to the fact that there's both of these stressors happening? Or maybe is it not as bad? Or does it matter if one comes first and then the other? Or if there is time in between? So there's all these questions around it, and we call that multiple stressors. Um, And so I look at that with these little marine invertebrates and specifically I look at the ones that live in kelp forests uh, because we have really good monitoring of kelp forests, especially on the west coast of North America. And you can really see over, you know, I have a 40 year time span of data so I can see over these huge time spans how all these different stressors are impacting individuals and then also the whole community. And you wanted a fun fact, didn't you? Let's see. Okay. A kelp fun fact. Um, kelp are seaweeds. They're a type of seaweed. Uh, and when we think about seaweed as a whole, um, seaweeds are actually three distinct lineages. So taxonomically speaking, when you think about you know a group like mammals, we all have a shared common ancestor. But seaweeds, it's like there are three separate trees and we kind of just group them all together so they're actually quite distinct and they're not plants so they aren't some are related to plants but they aren't plants wait i'm sorry can you back up seaweed kelp is not a plant no (laughs) (laughs) yeah so the green seaweeds are closely related to plants um, but they're like two different branches that are coming off so they're not plants they're different I think you just blew my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad I did. (laughs) That's amazing. So a little bit more about your research. It sounds like there are a lot of applications for climate change. You're using a 40-year data set. Mm -hmm. Have you seen any indications that, uh, well, obviously we know the climate's changing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But have you seen any indications with your research that it is causing these multiple stressors and a lot of a lot more impacts for the marine environment that you're looking at? 
Yeah. So my data set, um, it spans. So the one I'm looking at right now, the 40 year one that you mentioned, that one is from the Channel Islands. So it's this group of islands off the coast of Southern California. And yeah, they've been monitoring it for 40 years and they have tons of data. And over that 40 year time span, there's been uh, three El Nino events. So that's when the ocean gets really, really hot. Uh, which is not great for things that like it cold. And then there's been harmful algal blooms and sea star wasting disease and just echinoderm wasting disease in general. Um, There's been urchins that just come through and eat all the kelp. So you just have these beautiful kelp forests that are full of life just suddenly get like mowed down by a bunch of really hungry urchins. Um, And so through all of that, there's many different stressors going on. Um, But the most recent El Nino event, which is also just, we call it a warm water anomaly, a heat stress event. It's also called the blob, which is a very scary, funny name. Um, And with that event, especially, it was really long and it's like one of the hottest events on record. And we see in these invertebrates this like spike during it of what we call beta diversity. So beta diversity is essentially the diversity between groups. So if we have a bunch of different sites and they all change in different ways, so maybe some lose one species and another group loses a different species, we suddenly have all these different sites that just look more different from each other. And that's what we're seeing because of this heat wave. They're starting to look really different. And it's not that the heat wave is coming through and just kind of only leaving one species that was really good at surviving. It's like it's affecting different species in different ways. So now I've got to dig into it a little more and see if it's because there's multiple stressors going on. And that's why some species do better in some cases and not others. So there's lots of things at play here. (laughs) Whoa. Sounds like you have such a big amount of data to work through. (laughs) Can you maybe give us a little bit of an idea, like how much data do you have? Well, there's 40 years. Um, Okay, so (laughs) 40 years, I think I have 32 species of invertebrates that were seen. Um, I have 16 long-term sites. So I essentially have, I've shortened my time span a little bit to start in 1995 because the first kind of 10 years they were playing with methods a little bit trying to figure out exactly how to sample and sometimes they just kind of missed things and so I've shortened it a little bit so starting in 1995 to I think the latest one I got in was 2019 don't think I've gotten 2020's data yet Um, so that time span so every year in the summer they sample every site I have 16 long-term sites and then monitoring about 32 different uh, invertebrate species as they increase and decrease. Wow. Yeah. Wild. Lots of data. I'm so impressed. (laughs) (laughs) I can't even imagine. Like, my data set's so small. (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about how you got to where you are. Like, what did you research in the past? Like, what sparked your interest in the ocean? Okay. This is a a story and a half, I feel. Okay. (laughs) So, I did... Well, I grew up, I did my undergrad in Calgary, so middle of the prairies in Canada. We have Rocky Mountains, we love the mountains, and then we also have a lot of prairie land. And the ocean just kind of like doesn't exist. You know, like all of our courses, we had an aquatic ecology course, and it was about freshwater lakes. (laughs) They kind of 
forgot the ocean was there. Um, and so I went into my undergrad just as like a general biology major. Wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I kind of thought I wanted to go into medical illustration because I liked art a lot, um, which is funny because now I bring art into like designing figures and things, which is a fun workaround. Um, but I took some ecology courses and I was like, I like animals. This is really fun. I'm really enjoying this. And so I kind of started talking to counselors uh, and being like, okay, like what are my options here? And they're like, you could do a zoology degree. You could do an ecology degree. And I was like, I can't decide. So let's just put both majors in there for now. That would give me like first dibs on courses, but like I'll figure it out later and I'll pick one. (laughs) fast forward to like the end of my degree, I had like every degree requirement for both. And I wanted to do um, some research. Some of my friends had done some research. I'd done little independent projects in classes and things. um, And I really was like, I want to like do more. And they're like, well, you could go and do like Banfield course or something. That's always an option. And I was like, Banfield? Going out to the ocean? Interesting. I've never been out there. For our listeners, can you tell us what Banfield is? For sure. So Banfield is this magical place. It is on the west coast of Vancouver Island. It's just this really, really small town um, that, you know, if not for a giant research center there, would just be like a really small town on a map that people just wouldn't know about. But the Marine Science Center was built there I don't know how long ago, (laughs) a long time ago. And there are a bunch of universities on Western in Western Canada that all kind of work with the Marine Science Center to send students to take courses and to help fund them. And because of that, you can go and take summer courses and even do an entire fall semester out there on the ocean, playing in the intertidal zone, testing all these things in like real time. Like you're in, if you take invertebrate courses, you can just go and catch those invertebrates and look at them instead of just like Googling a picture in your basement because you wanted to see what it looked like. Um, So yeah, it's this amazing place. And I was like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. I can try and do some research, see the ocean. Uh, And I ended up doing a course on seaweeds (laughs) full circle and I went out there and I remember like my first like day of actually like doing the class we went out and we were just supposed to like sample some seaweeds and we would take them back to lab and we'd start to figure out what they were and I kind of stood there on like the bank of like in the intertidal zone and just like looking at all the amazing colorful seaweed like so much diversity of seaweed and just being like wow I didn't have a clue any of this was here. Like I had absolutely no idea that there was this much stuff under the ocean, let alone like it's beautiful and it's fun looking. Like I want to research it. I want to look at it. I was like, wow, that's crazy. And then I kind of like looked into the ocean and I was like, well, what's down there? Like what, what else is down there? What else do we not know? And then through that kind of seaweed course, I started to realize just like how little we knew about the ocean and I was like, okay, <laughs> we want to figure more of this out. Like, I want to, I want to figure this out. I want to learn more. Um, and that really sparked the like research aspect of my degree, because um, I didn't really know that you could have a job by like looking at things and researching things and not knowing things. Um, 
so I went back to university um, for my final year and I ended up doing an honors. But because I had a double major, they wouldn't let me just do one. I had to do two or I had to drop a major, but I already had all the degree requirements otherwise. So I did a part-time year for my fifth year where I just did two honors projects. <laughs> um, I was a little strategic with it and I was able, they both had to be with a different professor as like my supervisor, but I was able to pick the same taxa so that I wasn't like doing some fish stuff and then looking at microbes. Like I could work on one thing in like two different aspects. So I called it my mini masters because it was like a test. It was like, do I really like to do full-time research or am I going to get bored and just like want to go home and sleep, which I did a lot, but I also really liked it. And I ended up studying bats. And when I went to talk to the bat professor at my school, um, Robert Barkley, he was like, okay, you want to do an honors? That's great. Can you say why you want to do it with me without using the word bat? Which was great because I was like, I like the ocean. So like, <laughs> I mean, bats are kind of cute looking, I guess. I mean, at that time, I probably thought they were kind of scary. Um, but I was like, that's fine. I don't, I don't need to say the word bat anyway. I was like, I like the idea of doing more behavioral ecology. So looking at how animals are behaving. I like the idea of like actually working with animals and like doing experiments and these like longer studies um, and not just like put something in a tank for, you know, a day. I wanted to like do a bigger thing. And I was like, and I think this would work well with the fact that I need to do a second honors. I could do two different aspects. And he was like, sold, let's do this. Um, so with him, I ended up doing a like investigation into the diet of the little brown bat. Uh, so I looked at what it ate, uh, specifically looking to see if it ate spiders, uh, because there's uh, some data from the Northwest Territories and the Yukon that say, you know, sometimes when it's cold, they'll eat spiders. Is that because they're the only food out there or what? Anyway, so I looked at the diet. So it was a lot of like picking apart bat poop. Um, but I did get to catch the bats and collect their poop, which was fun holding the bats, not the poop. Um, and then the zoology side, I looked at the morphology of uh, the wings. So I took wing photos and kind of analyzed the, the shape of them to see if, you know, like heavier bats had different shaped wings or bats that, you know, fed by flying around had different shaped wings than ones that fed by having to like pick something off of a tree. Because if you're not very maneuverable, you just hit the tree and hurt yourself. So they should have different shaped wings. So I looked at that um, and... Yeah, I followed through the whole process of like doing the research, like collecting it myself, analyzing it, and then, you know, writing it up. And I ended up publishing both of them as small papers. Well, one was a note and one was a paper. And I was like, I like this. Love it. Let's go. But still in my mind, I'm like, okay, these bats are super cute and I really like these bats, but I kind of want to do something with the ocean. So I wanted to kind of like dive into the ocean real quick. So I did a little internship in South Africa working with um, this, it's called the South African Shark Conservancy. And they're this uh, nonprofit that is monitoring the endemic. So the species that only live in South Africa uh, for these little sharks. They're like little cat sharks, like, like a meter 
three feet long. Like they're really small. They have cute little faces. They don't have like a mouthful of teeth. Their teeth look like like the hooks on a cat's tongue. Like they're so cute. Uh, and so we were just like fishing for them and catching them, measuring them, tagging them, and sending them back. And I was like, love this, love the ocean. Like we're doing the ocean. So I applied for um, an NSERC, which is a funding kind of like opportunity within Canada. It's from the government. And I applied for it for uh, my master's because I was like, the only way I'm going to be able to do this is if I can find some funding. You know, most profs uh, won't take you on unless you have funding or you're able to get funding. So I was able to receive an NSERC at UVic, and I started working with Dr. Julia Baum uh, for my master's. And she does work on coral reefs. So I was working with a big data set, and this was the first big data set I was given. Like all my other ones were smaller data sets. One summer, you know, maybe I had like 100 bats, but only one summer. And so this was the Christmas Island data set is what we called it. So Christmas Island is this really small coral atoll that is about four hours of like plain south from Hawaii. Like if you look in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you're like, wow, it's all blue and you just kind of like hit the middle, that's where Christmas Island is. Like there's nothing around. It's so remote. Um, and the bomb lab, Julia Bomb's lab, has been monitoring this atoll since 2011, I think is the first data that we had. So it was, you know, a good 10-year time span when I joined the lab of like just all of this coral data. And within it, that El Nino that I mentioned in my work, the 2015-2016 El Nino, um, it hit Christmas Island and like it almost completely wiped out the corals. Like it just decimated it. So her lab was monitoring corals and looking at the effects that the human population was having. And then this huge El Nino hit and she's like, okay, we need to like start doing these big analyses of like, what is affecting corals. And so when I started in the lab, she presented these ideas of multiple stressors and looking at the humans and the temperature on the coral population. And yeah, I ran with it. So I looked at the soft corals themselves. So soft corals don't have the hard calcium carbonate skeleton that hard corals do. So they're actually kind of like soft and they like move a little bit and they look fuzzy. Um, And then the other corals, the hard corals, the sclerotinian corals, they are like, if you brushed up against them, you could like cut yourself. Like they're really hard. Um, and so because of that skeleton where they seem to do better in the heat, the soft corals just kind of like melted away. Like we have photos of them turning neon green and like dripping. It looked real weird. Um, but they essentially just like all got wiped out. So I did one chapter on that. And then I did a chapter on just like general diversity of the corals in with all the different stressors across the whole atoll. Yeah, and then I finished that up. That ended up being fully computer-based because the good old pandemic. <laughs> um, so that was all online and that was like really just like crunching all these big numbers and data sets. Um, and at the end, um, this new prof was coming to UVic and I reached out just to be like, hey, do you need like a research assistant or like a lab manager? Because you're going to be new to the university Um, because I thought I'd miss my window for a PhD. I was like, okay, take a year, suss out some things, figure it out, and then we'll, we'll apply and things. And 
yeah, that was Amanda Bates. And she was just like, well, no, I don't need any RAs and I don't need a lab manager. I already have one. How does a PhD sound? <laughs> I'm like, all right, <laughs> sounds good. Our research interests aligned really well. I was interested in multiple stressors and she has always been really interested in temperature in the oceans with just a variety of different organisms and um, environments. And so she was like, yeah, this is a really good fit. You want to do a PhD? I'm like, yeah, let's go. Uh, and that is where I am now. That's the project that I was telling you about earlier. Wow. <laughs> what a journey. That's amazing. From bats yep. to sharks to coral reefs and now to multiple stressors and invertebrates. Wow. Amazing. <laughs> so for our listeners out there, take Dom as the example. There's so many things you can do with ocean research and even in ecology. Oh, yeah. So there's so much. We need more scientists, people. And also, I think it really helped, like, how broad my education was. Like, there's times where I link concepts to, like, the tree biology stuff I learned in undergrad. And sometimes if you talk to someone who has always known that they wanted to do marine biology and kind of put up blinders and only focused on marine biology, then like they just kind of miss things. And so I feel like when you have like a really holistic, especially like undergrad experience, when you go into these more specialized areas, you can really pull all these different concepts um, and then you have like a better understanding of your system. Yeah, no, I totally agree because ecology is a holistic science. Yeah. Like we have to take into account all these different effects, all these different aspects. And the broader that you're able to think, I think the better your science will be. So... Tell me, what does a normal day look like for you? <laughs> I feel like with ecology work, especially, like, you have, like, two types of days. You have, like, a field day and, like, a lab day. Um, and right now, my field work is very, like, we're still trying to figure out what's going to happen. Will I go to Banfield and do some things? I have uh, someone on my committee who works with Hakai, so, like, Quadra Island, maybe, or... You know, will I go more tropical? So the field work days haven't happened yet. So we'll toss those aside. But for my lab days, which is what I do every day, um, it usually is me waking up and coming into work, finding myself a coffee, and then I sit down at my computer where I stay for most of the day, always getting some walks in though. Um, and I start various different tasks. So things I try to do most days are like read a paper, whether it's a paper that someone has sent me or just one I find. Um, I always try to add in a little bit of learning stats. So I love stats. Um, <laughs> Dom is also part of EcoStats. <laughs> I love stats. I think stats are great. Um, and so I always add in like a little like learning something about coding or learning something about stats. So whether it's like, like, reading a chapter in a book or looking at an online tutorial or something, a little bit of learning. I try to get in a little writing every day. Most days that doesn't happen, though, if we're being honest, because I hate writing. Um, but if I have, like, something I should be writing, I try to get in, like, a little bit of that. Um, and then if I have meetings, uh, take those meetings. Right now I'm not TAing, so that frees up a lot of my time um, because I don't have to prep for labs and run the labs and attend all the meetings. Um, but that happens most semesters. Uh, and then most of the, my day, I'd say like the bulk of my day is always like working on my own code and my own statistical analyses and things. So a lot of 
staring at the different software and thinking about things. I like to draw things out as I go and try and figure out like what the figure should look like before I make it. Um, so if you came by my computer, you'd probably see R open in one window and then Google in another of like, trying to figure something out. Um, but yeah, and that's most of my day Yeah, sprinkled with different meetings mostly. Yeah. It also sounds like those walks are pretty important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> lots of walks. If you drink a lot of water, you're forced to go on lots of walks that so exactly. you can head to the washroom. The great thing about being in grad school is there's a lot of flexibility, but there's mm-hmm. also you're never bored. <laughs> no, I remember starting my master's and just being like, okay, here's my schedule. I have a meeting with Julia at like, I used to meet, I think on Friday morning. So it'd be like Friday at like 10 or something and be like, okay. Everything else is blank. Like, there's nothing else in there. And I would get so overwhelmed at the start of just like, I know I just have this ending goal of a thesis that I have to make, but like, how do I get there? And like, so overwhelming. And so you really have to like, piece by piece, like pick it apart and make like very small attainable goals. And then, yeah, your days are so flexible that it's so easy to book like a dentist appointment now because you're just like, yeah, what day do you want to do it? And they're like, okay, does like Wednesday at like 11 work? Yeah. Oh yeah. Like that's fine. Like I'll just, you know, I'll work from home in the morning and I'll come in in the afternoon. Um, And so that is always like nice that you can really arrange your schedule how you want. Some of my lab mates don't show up until like 11 and then they work until like 7 or 8 p.m. And like that's their like prime hours. I'm definitely more of the like, in my chair by nine, doing things and like leave before five kind of hours. Um, but yeah, it's really like a choose your own adventure, what my supervisor always says. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's it's pretty great because you can choose your own adventure and you can still like do work and be productive and whatever. And you don't have to worry about like the constrictiveness of mm-hmm. a nine to five job, which oh, yeah. a lot of people struggle with including me. (laughs) (laughs) And like if you're working and it's like 1 p.m. and you're like, my brain is dead. And uh, like if I wasn't a nine to five, you'd have to sit there for another four hours and like using air quotes like work. Um, But with grad school, you can just be like, yeah, I'm just going to take the rest of the day off. And whether or not, you know, you feel like you're on track, maybe you never make that time up. Or maybe you're like, okay, you know what? I'm just going to take today off and I'm going to work Saturday morning for a couple hours. Done no sweat. No one is worried about you and like where you are. It's like, you can just take it off. You want a four day weekend, you can make it happen. You know, it's very flexible. It's great, but it's also a double edged sword, I think. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Because there really is a lot less accountability than I think a lot of us are used to in our undergrad or previously. And it is, you have to be a very responsible person. You become like a productivity like fiend where you're just like finding all the productivity apps and all the ways to like make different lists and check things off and like get things done and make all your goals. Yeah, you you do. You really do have to be accountable. Do you have a favorite productivity app website? (laughs) So I have gone (laughs) deep down the hole of productivity and right now I'm using Notion. It is a very like You can use it as like a second brain kind of idea where you can store all information that is not needed in your own brain so you don't forget it. Um, And it's very customizable. Um, 
That's one I really like. Or there's one that's called To Do. It's just like a to do list. And it's it's not like the like the letter. It's like T E U X D E U X. Like it's kinda like a play on to do, like a to do list. Um, but I use that one for all of my masters. It was just like a really good like to do list keeping things and things would roll over to the next day so that when you didn't check them off, they showed up on the next day instead of just disappearing. Like you just lose the piece of paper. I was just asking for a friend, a.k.a. me. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, when you just have a piece of paper that's a to-do list, it just gets lost Mm -hmm. somewhere Mm -hmm. all the time. So another question for you. How do you think the obstacles that you faced on your journey throughout your undergrad, throughout your internships, all the stuff that you did, how do you think that has changed how you look at science and just like your grad graduate degree, graduate experience in general? Yeah, so I would say that some of the biggest challenges that I had were finances were definitely one. I come from a firmly blue collar family. I am a first generation university student let alone graduate student. And so funding was definitely something that I always had to work for. Uh, So grades were super important to me to this day where I'm like trying to rewire my brain of like grades are not that important, especially in your PhD. Like you're at the end. They're not that important. But like all through undergrad, like I was really particular with my grades because I knew that like the only way I was going to get scholarships to be able to continue my degree was if I had like a competitive GPA. So that is one thing that I always struggled with of just like separating my identity from my grades. Um, So if you are in your undergrad, especially trying to separate that as early as you can of like you can get like a C or a D and that doesn't mean like you're a terrible person. Like you got a CRD. Who cares? Like in the long run, it's not going to make that much of a difference. Um, if you're working hard and getting like on average, like pretty decent grades, like that's really what um, is needed. You don't need perfect. Um, and so that was always a struggle. And also I would just say like, I don't know if it like really like accessibility, but just like, like knowledge. Like I came from blue collar, like my parents wanted me to get a university degree and then just get a job. I didn't know that you could be a scientist who is not wearing a lab coat and shaking chemicals around. Like, didn't know that ecology was even a thing. Didn't know you could go into research. I couldn't really conceptualize what made a prof a prof. Like, how did they get there? Just kind of thought they got a degree and then got a teaching job. Not that they got a degree and then another one and then another one and then postdoc around for a bit. And then after like applying to 20 universities, finally landed a teaching job. Um, so, yeah, I just I had no idea that all of this was an option. Um, and that really has led me to just a lot of outreach. I am such a big like believer in outreach. I do Skype a scientist every semester. It's this really great nonprofit. They just kind of link scientists who apply with um, just classes who apply. So a teacher will be like, you know, I have a sixth grade class in Texas and we would like to hear from someone about the ocean. And then they'll connect you and you can just speak to the class and be like, yeah, like I'm a woman in science. I did not come from a bunch of money. I got here myself. It was a lot of work, but you all can do it too. And I love doing that because 
uh, like just recently I, I did one maybe like a month ago and the teacher uh, emailed me back at the end and she was like, you just convinced a really shy girl that she could be a marine biologist. And I was like, oh, <laughs> like my heart. Cause like, I didn't know these were a thing. I like love telling people that like, yeah, you can go run around outside and look at all these animals, do a bunch of stats. And then that's a job. Like you found something cool and you know something no one else knew and you can make a living doing that. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. It's, why we need more people like you in science to show little girls like that, that yes, you can be a marine scientist. You can be a scientist. You can be whatever you want to be. Mm-hmm. And I've had a similar experience. Like, So, I mean, it's just like we need more people to be in science. We need more people doing outreach. Another aspect of science that we don't talk about a lot is how we need to make it more accessible. So, Thanks for being here doing this. <laughs> yeah. You're doing awesome. <laughs> and I know I'm only doing a little part and I could do so much more. So we all we all have a part to play. Yeah. And even if do it. all of us just do a little part, just that adds bit. up to like a really big part. Yeah. So we'll start winding down here. Um, is there anything that you're excited about coming up in the future for your research or anything else that you want to share with us? Mm, excited about with my research. Well, the first chapter of my thesis so the first like little project this channel islands one is kind of coming to a wrap and i am pretty excited about my next one um i'll be using a big data set from it's called reef life survey it's this um citizen scientist program started in australia but now it's worldwide and essentially trained scuba divers can get trained by rls the reef life survey crew and then you can just go off and do scuba dives and do their methods and collect data for them. So you're just kind of volunteering your time. If you're a trained scuba diver, you can find these different workshops and get trained and then contribute this data. And so it's a huge data set and it started in Australia. So it's got the most kind of surveys and longest time span in Australia. Uh, And so my next chapter, I'm going to pull some of that data and again, look at multiple stressors and the invertebrates and things. Um, But I'm excited about that because Australia is obviously really cool. I'd love to go there. Um, So, yeah, always excited for big data sets. Yeah, well, let me know if you need extra help (laughs) because I would go with you. (laughs) Right? we got to go collect our own data too, right? Exactly. Well, hey, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed having you on the show and wishing you the best for your research in the future. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.